2 Samuel 18. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate, while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. And the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What, you saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, For my sake protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, every one, to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run and carry news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You are not to carry news today. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news, because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go, tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed before Joab and ran. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. 
And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you will have no reward for the news? Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, Run. Then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall. And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out and told the king, And the king said, if he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he drew nearer and nearer. The watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gate and said, see, another man running alone. The king said, he also brings news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, he is a good man and comes with good news. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, all is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and said, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. And the king said, Is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. And the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king. For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, O oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. It was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, O oh, my son Absalom, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines, because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. This is the word of the Lord. Well, that's all the time we have for today. So God bless you. Now, please pray with me.
Father, we thank you for this day that you have given to us. Father, it is a joy to be gathered together, to be able to worship you with your people. God, we're thankful that we have fellowship with one another as members of the body of Christ. God, we're thankful today that for every single one of us who have put our faith and our trust in Jesus, that we have fellowship with you, that we know you and that we are known by you and we're loved deeply and perfectly by you. God, we pray that today you would help each one of us to be secure in your love. Lord, that you would fill us with trust in the good news of the gospel, that we would be reminded today that You have not saved us because of our own greatness or our own righteousness or because of anything that we have done for you. You have saved us because you love us and you have chosen to save us. And because that's true, God, nothing can ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Lord, would you let that good news wash over our minds and our hearts today? God, would you fill us with hope? Would you fill us with faith today? And Lord, would you use this chapter in the Old Testament telling history that happened some 3,000 years ago, would you use that to bolster our faith and to meet us right where we're at today? Minister to us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, please be seated. Good morning, everyone. Well, the title of our sermon here this morning is The End of the Rebellion. The End of the Rebellion. Now, for me personally, when I think of the rebellion, my mind goes to Star Wars. I personally really enjoy the Star Wars films, and because I'm too pure of heart to be drawn to the dark side, I'm always rooting for the Rebel Alliance. I wasn't always a fan, though. I didn't grow up watching the Star Wars films. In fact, my wife Erica has told me numerous times that had she known I wasn't a Star Wars fan when she met me, it was probably a deal breaker. So it was good that she didn't know that bit of information. But after her and I got married, she quickly converted me. I watched all the films, and I've become an avid Star Wars fan. And in the Star Wars films, of course... The plot, as far as the rebellion is concerned, goes like this. The rebellion is what is constantly on the verge of being crushed. They're always in a position of weakness against the empire. And so they're the ones who are always about to be smashed and crushed, but they actually never quite are. Through some heroics, they're always delivered. In the story before us, it's actually reversed. It's quite the opposite. It's the rebellion, it's Absalom's rebellion, that has the upper hand. They're the one with strength in numbers. They're the one with the superior superpower and fighting ability. They're the ones that are occupying the capital city. Absalom is the one who has had many of David's key people defect to his side. So he's the one, even though he's the rebel, who's in the position of power and in the position of strength. And yet, It is Absalom and his rebel forces that meet their demise in the passage that we've read this morning. 
The interesting thing, though, is that this passage isn't really about the battle or the rebel army. We know that by observing the structure of the passage. Structurally, you'll notice that the battle is introduced in just a few short verses, right at the beginning of chapter 18. And then the outcome of the whole battle is is covered in just three verses. It's verses 6 through 8. And that tells us that the author here is not mainly concerned about the battle. Instead, what we find is that lots of text in chapter 18 and moving into chapter 19 is devoted to the death of Absalom and then David's reaction to the death of his son. So the author then is concerned with helping us to understand things about the death of Absalom, how this man died, and he's concerned with us understanding how that affected King David. And so as we reflect on this passage together this morning, we're going to focus on those two big authorial concerns. Again, the death of Absalom and all that happened there and what that meant, and then how this all affected the king, his father, David. Let's begin then with the death of Absalom or as I've put it here this morning, the rebel's death, which is covered for us in the first 18 verses here of chapter 18. Now, let me just set the scene for us briefly before we start looking at this text. In the few chapters that come right before chapter 18, Absalom, the king's son, has risen up in revolt against his father. He's angry with his dad, And he's attempting to usurp his dad's throne and take over his dad's kingdom. And Absalom had gathered a large army and widespread support from all of the nation of Israel. When that happened and David got word of it, David realized he was very vulnerable. And he realized that Absalom and this gigantic army are making their way down on the capital city, which is Jerusalem. And so David and the few faithful followers that he still had, they evacuate the city and they flee out into the wilderness and then they take up uh, residence in a different city. When David evacuated the city, Absalom then seized the city of Jerusalem. He and his large army are occupying the city. And now these two forces are on a collision course to have a battle, to sort out who will be king. And that battle is, again, covered for us here in chapter 18. Now, we don't know how much time has passed since David left Jerusalem and Absalom got there. But we do know that David has had enough time now to gather unto himself a pretty sizable army. It's an army large enough to be broken up into three main fighting divisions with groups of soldiers in the hundreds and groups of soldiers in the thousands. We see that right there in the first couple of verses. So he's got a significant fighting force at this point, but Absalom's army certainly dwarfs David's in size. Absalom was recruiting soldiers from all over the nation of Israel. And so the battle is ready. David here intends to lead his army out to battle. He intends to go and meet Absalom and fight in this battle. But that's not what happens. Look again at verse 3 of chapter 18. But the men said, you shall not go out. For if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. 
Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. Verse 4, the king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. So David's men recognize that David's pretty old at this point. He's not the the great warrior that he once was. And they recognize rightly that he's the king and his life matters a lot more than the life of an average soldier. And if he dies, the whole thing's over. And so they say, no, 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 you just stay in the city and you help us. You send us help when we need it. You kind of lead from the back rather than the front. And we're going to go out and we'll fight Absalom and his army for you. And David listens and he stays back and he watches his army march out of the city. But notice again in verse 5, the final instructions that he gives to his commanders as they take off. It says, And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And then notice what the author puts out here for our attention. It says, And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So as they're leaving, he looks at his three commanders and he says, as his final parting command, deal gently with my son for my sake. The army hears this. And because of that, the army is now put in a very tough spot. On one hand, they need to go out and they need to fight a violent battle to save David and deliver him from their enemy. And yet, as they go out and they try to wage this war, now they have this command on them that they have to be very, very careful as they go about their business. Because David does not want anything happening to his son. This is putting them in a really, really tough spot. And already the troops are beginning to sense who matters most to King David. And it's not them. This will produce problems as the story goes forward. Well, in only three verses, verses 6 through 8, we learn of the general outcome of the battle. Let's just just read it again here. 2 Samuel 18, verse 6. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. So the battle happened. David's men went out, they met Absalom's men and it was a great victory for David's soldiers. 20,000 Israelites died in the battle that day. There was massive bloodshed and it was a resounding victory for David. Now, curiously, in verse 8, we read that the forest devoured more of the Israelite soldiers than Joab's army actually did. The forest gets credited with doing the most damage. I mean, what is going on here? That's a really weird thing to read. It sounds sort of like the scene from the Lord of the Rings where the giant tree-like creatures called Ents get involved in the battle, you remember that, and they help actually destroy Isengard? While Star Wars are now Lord of the Rings. My nerdiness is like on full display here today. But that's what comes to my mind. Like the forest is involved in the battle. The forest is waging war against Israel. Probably the mention of the forest's role in the battle is meant to communicate 
that ultimately it was the Lord who gave David the victory and not the might of his troops in battle. But what's interesting is when you look at verse 9, we do realize that there was at least one Israelite soldier that day who was directly killed by the forest. And it was a very significant person. It was none other than Absalom himself. Look at verse 9. It says, And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. So imagine that. He's, he's riding, he's trying to get away from David's men, and as he's riding on his mule, he goes under oak branches, and somehow his head gets caught in these branches and he's just dangling there and he cannot free himself. A New International Version and other translations say that it was his hair that got caught in the trees here. Now, I've always had this story about Absalom embedded in my memory ever since I was a young boy because me and my siblings and my dad were playing Bible charades one time in our living room. And my dad wanted to enact, reenact this story. He wanted us to guess this story. And we were in the living room. And between the living room and the kitchen in that doorway, my dad had a pull-up bar. And so his idea was, I'm going to go like galloping across the living room. And then when I get to that pull-up bar, I'll grab onto it and swing there and dangle there. And I'll look like Absalom dangling from a tree branch. And so my dad's doing this and he goes galloping across the living room really fast. And he goes to jump and grab the pull-up bar. But when he does, it dislodges. And so he hits it with all this force and it dislodges and he swings forward like that. And he comes crashing down on the tile and he breaks his foot. And he was in a cast for weeks, like one of those boots, and he couldn't work for like a week and a half. And it's a great memory in our family. It's a story we love to tell about dad getting injured. But I've always remembered from that point forward how Absalom died. He got hung in a tree by his head or his hair. The Hebrew word does mean head, Although some scholars do tell us that it can refer to the hair of a person's head. And if that's the case, it sure makes for an ironic twist in Absalom's fate. Earlier in Absalom's story, the author of 2 Samuel made it a point to highlight for us Absalom's incredible looks and specifically his amazing, long, flowing hair. This is back in 2 Samuel chapter 14, verses 25 and 26. We read there, Now in all Israel there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. Now, when we were in chapter 14, I mentioned that, that that amounts to about five pounds of hair, if we can take that literally. But either way, it's supposed to be a ton of hair that this guy had. And for Absalom, his hair was his glory. 
For Absalom, it was a source of his pride. I mean, it wasn't just enough to go get his haircut. He was like, just measure that out so that I can put that on my resume. I got better hair than everybody here in Israel. So this was his glory. It was this source of pride in his life. It was a picture of his youthful vigor and his virility. But now here's the irony. It's his very hair that turns out to be his downfall. Absalom serves as an illustration of Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Now, obviously, there was nothing inherently wrong with Absalom being handsome or with Absalom having incredible hair. Just like there is nothing inherently wrong with your strengths and your very best attributes. Whether that's like Absalom, it's your great looks. Maybe it's your charisma or your persuasiveness or your intelligence or know-how or your networking abilities, or your leadership capacity. There's nothing inherently wrong with those strengths that you might have, or those natural God-given blessings that you might have in your life. But oftentimes it is the case that it's the strengths that we have. It's our very best attributes that end up ensnaring us. The key is this, the issue really boils down to this. We we can either allow those sorts of things to be a source of pride and then leverage them to pursue our own selfish ends, or we can respond to those things with humble gratitude and we can seek to steward those sorts of things for the Lord and for the good of others. In 1 Corinthians 4, 7, the Apostle Paul offers us this perspective that you could just put over everything in your life. Paul writes this, he says, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So in Absalom's case, you can look at his great looks, his handsome appearance, his amazing hair, his charisma. You can look at that and you could say, you received that. You didn't make yourself handsome. You didn't make yourself charismatic. You received that. That was a natural blessing that you had in your life. But for Absalom, again, it became a source of pride in his life. And it was something that he leveraged to pursue his own selfish ends. And so again, the key comes from having the perspective of 1 Corinthians 4-7. Where all of the blessings, all of the things that we have, all of the ways that God has made you special and blessed you, we say, Thank you, Lord, for creating me the way that you have. Thank you for giving me these skills. Thank you for giving me this intelligence. Thank you for making me the way that I am. And I want to use the way that you've wired me and created me and all that you've blessed me with. I want to use that for your glory and for the good of other people. But that wasn't Absalom. And so Absalom finds himself caught here hanging in a tree most likely by the very hair that he was so proud of. And once he's there dangling in this tree, we can see now the significance of that little footnote back in verse 5, that all of the people heard the command of David to his commanders. Because when the man who gets to Absalom and finds him and discovers him hanging in this tree, when he gets there, rather than killing Absalom, And ending this war, he goes back and tells Joab about it. 
And when Joab finds out that this guy saw Absalom hanging in this tree and he let him live, Absalom is beside himself. He cannot understand this, but we understand it. We know the reason why. And the man explains himself in verse 12. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. And then here's his reason. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. So his perspective is, what good is it to be rich if I'm dead? If I would have killed this guy, David would have me killed. Because David did not want anything happening to his son. And guess what, Joab? If I had done that, you wouldn't have stood up and defended me. You would have stood aloof. You would have just let me get my head chopped off. That's why I didn't touch Absalom. And so at this, Joab's just like, whatever. I have to go do this myself. He goes out. And the scripture says he takes three javelins in his hand and he throws them through the heart of Absalom. And then his armor bearers come behind him and make sure the young man is killed. And at this moment, the war is effectively over. Absalom, the traitor, is dead. The coup has failed and Joab calls off all of his troops. There's no more reason for further bloodshed among brothers and fellow countrymen. And so the war is over. But Absalom's story is not quite over. I want you to notice the inglorious end that he faces, starting in verse 17. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest, and raised over him a very great heap of stones, and all Israel fled, everyone to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the, bill, the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. During his lifetime, Absalom did everything in his power to become someone great. He attempts to take his father's throne. He wants to be king. He even goes, we read there in verse 18, at some point in his life, and he sets up a monument for himself. This is probably after he took the capital city. Sets up a monument for himself in the King's Valley. I got to be remembered with all of Israel's great kings. I want a monument for myself. And he names it after himself. I will be remembered. He's doing everything to make a name for himself. But notice now that after he's killed, he's just tossed into a pit in the middle of a forest. And the soldiers take a bunch of stones and they just lay stones over this man's body to keep him buried in the soil. Instead of an honorable burial with a beautiful tomb in the capital city where people can come and honor him in perpetuity, what does he get? He gets an unmarked grave in the middle of a forest that with the passing of time will probably become unrecognizable. Scholars tell us that he's receiving the kind of treatment that would have been afforded to a reprobate 
or an enemy of the Lord. I mean, what a sad reversal. He gets the exact opposite of what he so desperately sought. He was aiming for glory and he gets shame. That's the end for this man. But actually it's not. It gets even worse than this. We know from back in chapter 14 that Absalom had three sons. And yet now did you notice in verse 18 that it says he has no son to keep his name in remembrance. Evidently for Absalom, his three sons that he had all died in their, their, their youth and probably in their infancy. So he had three sons. They've all since died. He has no son to carry his name forward. In ancient Israel, this was a fate worse than death for a man. In fact, that's why there were laws that if a man died and he was childless, actually his brother was supposed to have children on his behalf so that his name could go forward and he could be remembered in the nation of Israel. And yet for this man, Absalom, who again so desperately wanted to make a name for himself, he, he created a monument, he wanted people to remember him, he isn't even afforded the privilege of having children and future generations named after him. His legacy ends right here. Absalom's story then is a sad reminder of the fate of every person who chooses to live for themselves and who chooses to live for their own glory and their own greatness. Friend, if you have no regard for God, then no matter what you accomplish in your life, your destiny will be an inglorious one. Even more so than Absalom's, where he's thrown into a pit in an unmarked grave. Jesus famously said in Mark 8.36, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? You could have everything. You could become a king. You could have fame. You could have money. You could have all of these things. But Jesus is saying that you can have all of that and still forfeit the thing that matters most. And therefore, you could come up empty-handed in eternity. And so all of us have to answer the question, what am I after? What is my life's aim? What am I pursuing? And whatever that is, ask yourself this question, will it lead to glory? Because living for Jesus actually will. Living for Jesus actually will lead to glory. Listen to what the rest of Jesus, or listen to the rest of what Jesus had to say there in Mark chapter 8. Let me reread verse 36 and then see what he says after it. He says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. There is glory to be had, an infinite amount of it in the presence of God, in the kingdom of his Son. And Jesus is inviting us into that glorious future to share in it with him. But Jesus warns us if we're ashamed of him and if we reject him and his words, we'll have no share in that. 
Friends, ultimately, it all comes down to living for Christ. I want to read for us some of the words of a famous poem. Many of you have at least heard the, the, the title of it, but it's a famous poem from a man named C.T. Studd. It's called, Only One Life, Twill Soon Be Passed. Now, C.T. Studd lived from 1860 to about the 1930s. He was born into wealth and affluence. Uh, he, was, he had a lot going for him, but he came to Christ in college, and he ended up sacrificing his life and sacrificing his wealth and sacrificing his affluence to devote himself to reaching some of the most unreached peoples in the world. And he wrote this poem. And I'll read some of it for you. He says this, and I quote, Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say twas worth it all. Only one life will, will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Then he ends like this, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. It's beautiful. It's powerful. And he gets it right at the end of the day. It's only what we've done for Christ. It's only living for Christ that will last, that will have any eternal significance. Absalom is dead. Absalom is buried. And Absalom's story ends here. But after his defeat, news has to be brought back to King David. He needs an update from the battle. And this leads to our second big concern in the text, which is David's reaction, or the way I put it, the father's reaction. Ahimaaz, who has functioned as David's courier during the whole rebellion, asks Joab for permission to go and deliver this message. But Joab tells him no. And the reason is because Joab is concerned for this young man's well-being. Joab knows what Ahimaaz does not know. In his youthful ignorance and zeal, he thinks he's going to run back and tell David, Absalom's dead and David's going to celebrate. And Joab's wise enough to know better. Joab knows about the complex relationship that David has with his son Absalom. Joab also knows that on two previous occasions, a messenger from the battlefield came and told David that his enemy was dead, thinking that he would receive a reward, 
And in both, on both instances, what that messenger received was execution. So Joab, with a tender heart for this young man, says, you're not going. The king's son is dead. You're not going. It's not happening. And instead, he dispatches a foreigner, a Cushite, which is probably a region that was south of Egypt. So this Cushite gets sent with this terrible news for King David. But because Ahimaaz is so persistent, he asks three different times, Joab finally lets him go. He probably assumes, hey, the Cushite has enough of a head start. He'll get there first. He's going to receive the, the, the negative reaction of David, and then Ahimaaz can get there and fill in more details. The problem, though, is that he misjudged Ahimaaz a little bit. Evidently, this guy was like the Usain Bolt of his day. Because even though this Cushite has this massive head start, we read, we read in the text that he gets outrun by this young priest. And he gets there and he tells David news from the battle in verse 28. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, All is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth and he said, Blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my Lord the king. Verse 29. And the king said, Notice this, the king doesn't say, Excellent. The king doesn't celebrate. This is great news. This is wonderful. The only thing on David's mind is Absalom. And the king said, is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimaaz answered, when Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion, but I do not know what it was. He he doesn't want to tell uh, King David exactly what happened to Absalom. Maybe Joab gave him a little coaching before he finally gave him permission to go. But nevertheless, he's, he's nervous. It could have also just been when David asked him that direct question, he just realized in that moment, oh my goodness, David's really, really concerned about the well-being of his son. And he's like, I don't exactly know what happened. Something went down. Nevertheless, the Cushite gets there and he fills David in on the news. Verse 31, and behold, the Cushite came and the Cushite said, good news for my Lord, the king. For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. Again, notice David doesn't say wonderful. He's got one thing on his mind. The king said to the Cushite, is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, may the enemies of my Lord, the king, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. Translation, he's dead. And it was an inglorious Death, may all of your enemies meet the grave like he did. Verse 33. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. This is a moving story. And that's a very emotional verse right there. This this father hearing of his son's death, crying out in grief and anguish. He goes up to a room above the gate of the city where he can just let it all out and he's just bawling his eyes out. And this shows the complexity of the relationship that David had with his son Absalom. Because despite Absalom's sin, Despite his rebellion, 
despite his attempt to kill his father and take his dad's throne, David does not hate his son. He does not wish ill upon his son. Ultimately, you can tell that David was hoping for some level of reconciliation, that they could somehow patch all of this up and move forward. His fatherly heart is on full display here. Of course, it reminds us of the heart of God himself, where we read in the Old Testament that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Even those who are hell-bent on rebelling against God, he does not get joy out of seeing their destruction. It goes on to say that he would rather that they repent and that they find life. And David here displays that fatherly heart of God even toward a rebellious son here. Now for some readers, it's shocking to see David's tenderness here toward Absalom because we know how wretched this boy has been. We know what he's done. We know how he's acted toward David. But I think it's helpful for us to remember that David feels some level of responsibility for what has happened to Absalom. While it's true that Absalom died because of his own sin and because of his rebellion, it is also true that Absalom died because of David's sin. You'll remember that after David committed adultery with Bathsheba and then went on to murder her husband Uriah, the prophet Nathan confronted David and God spared David from death, even though David sinned. But then God said that calamity would fall on his house. That the sword would never depart from his house. That one from within his own family would rise up in rebellion against him. All of this was prophesied. All of this was part of the consequences for David's own sin. And because of all of this, David legitimately wishes that he and Absalom could switch places. Probably not in this moment, but more likely David here when he's crying out and saying, would it, have, or would it that it could have been me? What's going on is David saying, I should have died for my sin. When God put my sin away from me after my own sin, it would have been better if I just died there than this having to happen to my son and my family. And he's grieved over this and he's certainly feeling guilty. What's so amazing here is that what David longed to do for Absalom, God accomplished for us. I mean, think about it. Absalom is the guilty rebel here. But King David wishes he could step in and he could die in Absalom's place. Tim Chester, who's a commentator on the Old Testament, says the whole episode cries out for a king who will bear our fate, die our death, and take away our guilt. And of course, Jesus Christ is that king. I mean, the storyline of the gospel is that every one of us through our sin, beginning with our first parents, Adam and Eve, we have all rebelled against God. And we've said, we don't want to do things your way. We're going to do it our own way. We're going to live for ourselves and we're going to live according to our own wisdom. And yet in Christ, God stepped in and delivered us. Jesus went to the cross. Jesus died in our place and Jesus took our sin and our guilt upon himself so that you and I could be let free. It's amazing. 
It's remarkable. He, the greater David, fulfilled David's longing here. He stepped in and he died for guilty rebels. David, of course, could not undo what had happened. He couldn't step in and take Absalom's place. The rebel is dead and David has to come to grips with that. And he's bereft and he's overwhelmed with grief and he's in this chamber above the city gate. And the fact that the king responded this way changed the entire atmosphere of the city and and the return of all of these troops. They were victorious in battle, but they're coming back to a city now that is grieving and feels like a city that had lost a war rather than the city being a place of celebration. And rather than these returning troops being treated as heroes, verse 2 tells us that the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. And then in verse 3 it says, And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. I mean, get that picture. The people are sneaking back into the city like a soldier would do who basically just gave up on his duty. He chickened out, he fled the battle scene, and he's just trying to sneak back into the city undetected. That's the way these soldiers are feeling. And so when Joab, the commander, is informed of this, he marches right into that room and he rebukes King David sternly. Joab has the unfortunate job of going in to a man who is bawling, who is overwhelmed with grief and shaking him out of his grief. And the reason why Joab is doing this is because Joab knows that David has to see the harm that his actions are causing to the army. Look at verse 5. Then Joab came into the house to the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants, who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines, because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today, I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. And then here's what he tells him to do. Now, therefore, arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. This is a serious rebuke. But there's a serious crisis happening. Joab rightly points out that what David is doing is he's actually causing shame to his servants. He's dishonoring them. They went out and put their necks on the line for David and they were victorious. And instead of David honoring them on their return and celebrating them and having them share in the spoils of war, David is treating them like they've done something wrong. And in his grief over Absalom, David is making it clear who really mattered to him. So David is warned by Joab, if you don't change your tune, you will lose all your soldiers. They're going to walk away from you. They're going to abandon their post and you will be left with nothing. Ultimately, you will lose your kingdom. This is an interesting passage on grief. Grief is really, really hard. I just... 
last week reread A Grief Observed by C.S. Lewis. And thinking about grief and rereading it with, with real thoughts of grief. It was so amazing the way that C.S. Lewis, he basically, he was, he was journaling his own feelings about the death, the tragic death of his wife that he loved. And he was journaling his own feelings, probably never thought they'd be published, but they were. But it's so insightful, the depths and the layers of grief and the way that it just disorients a person. And there's a fog over you and you just can't even interact with the world in normal ways. And David's in that place and grief is really, really hard. But to make matters even worse, here we have grief mixed with guilt, which is the worst concoction you can imagine. I mean, it's one thing to lose a child. The grief from that is unbearable. So if your child dies and you lose your child, that in and of itself is unbearable. But it's a whole different thing to lose a child and to know that their death was in some way your fault. To have that guilt mixed with that grief makes that grief so unbearable and so deep. And so we should empathize with King David here and his mixed emotions here and the pain that he is, he is feeling here. But there's such a helpful lesson for us from his experience with grief. It's sometimes the case that we can be so overwhelmed by our grief that we're unable to see the impact that we're having on those around us. And without even knowing it, we can actually hurt those who are there to help us. These soldiers were here to help David. They did help David. They were on his side. His commanders were there to help him. They were on his side. But David is so overcome with grief and with guilt that he does not see how his actions are impacting those around him. And so Joab here is a help to David as he comes and helps David to actually see what his actions are doing and the way that it's hurting those around him. Grief is good and grief is right and grief is a necessary response to serious loss in our lives. But it would do us well to just be aware of the dangers that grief presents for us. Specifically the ways that it can so easily turn us inward and make us lose sight of others around us. And instead of including those others in the process of our grief, grief and receiving help from them and support from them, sometimes we can actually do things that hurt them and push them away from us. But Joab helps David. He brings attention to what David's actions are doing. And he gives David instruction on how he can course correct. And it works. The story ends with David getting up drying his tears, composing himself, and going and taking his seat at the city gate and receiving his troops and honoring his troops and treating them the way that they should. Verse 8 says, all the people came before the king. The calamity is averted, David's army is held together, and his rule is safe for now. As we close, I just want to make one final observation from this text. King David here was on the verge of losing everything. He was this close to being killed. He was this close to losing his kingdom. 
Things were as bleak and as uncertain as they could ever be in his life. But God delivered him. God remained faithful to his anointed one. As we know, David is a type of Christ who is God's ultimate anointed one. And in David's story, you can't help but see the parallels to Jesus' story. That just as David entered into this dark episode toward the end of his life, Jesus entered into the darkest episode of his life at the very end. It looked like betrayal and arrest and abandonment and, of course, death. It looked like for Jesus, just like for David, all had been lost. But what we learn from David becomes ultimately true in Christ, namely that God never gives up on his anointed one. And so against all odds, God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in glory. And friends, the good news for us is that by faith, we can be united to Jesus, God's anointed one, and we can share in all that is his. And what that means for us is that if you're a Christian here today and you're in Christ by faith, it means that God will never give up on us. It means that in every season, he will be with us, he will see us through, and it means that even in death, we are not defeated. No, we like Jesus Christ will be raised from the dead and we will share in his glory forevermore. And for that, we always have reason to rejoice. Let's pray together. God, we are so grateful for the good news of the gospel. We are so grateful for the good news of all that you have done for your people in and through Jesus Christ. We get glimpses of your heart. We get glimpses of your work through the work that you accomplished through your servant David some 3,000 years ago. And God, we are so thankful for his life. We're so thankful for his story. We're so thankful, God, for your faithfulness to David that you never go back on your word and you promised him an eternal kingdom. And so God, we we thank you for this great example of your faithfulness in David's life. But God, we know that David's life was meant to point us forward to his greater son, the Lord Jesus, your ultimate anointed one. And as we look to Jesus, we are reminded even more so of your faithfulness. And so God, today, we just want to praise you and thank you and honor you for your faithfulness to your anointed one, the Lord Jesus Christ, and your faithfulness to all of us who are one with him through faith, who belong to him, who are in him, and who now can be called in the New Testament anointed ones. God, thank you that your promises are with us and for us. And Lord, we pray that as we receive communion in a few minutes and we think about the death of Christ and the cost of of purchasing our salvation, we pray that we would be moved with gratitude and hearts of worship. So God, we thank you. We love you. We worship you today. In Jesus' name, amen.